One, two, three. The podcast is called Fresh Cuts. We're still calling it that, aren't we? Yeah, yeah. Okay. I was thinking that or knob. Hello and welcome to Fresh Cuts, the podcast from Funhouse magazine. And I just want to stop everything right now because somebody's here who's really important. The creator, the founder and the father of Funhouse magazine, Oliver Zarandi. Hey everyone, that was quite a dramatic uh, introduction, wasn't it? Did you like that? Yeah, that's very good. It's really good. If any people could actually see me, I'm far more impressive in real life, I think, right? Absolute atlas of a man. (laughs) Very good, yeah. Huge, And Ollie's (laughs) here because... This podcast this week is with someone who Ollie and I interviewed together. Ollie, do you want to tell us who it is? Yeah, sure. So we interviewed Kathy Rensenbrink, who wrote The Last Act of Love, um, a memoir about her brother and his accident. He was knocked down by a car on the way home from a night out. And it's about the journey that she and her mother and father had during that quite difficult period of their life. But it was an interview that it's not at all depressing. She's such an, you know, funny, mm. sort of, sort of full of life. She's got so much energy and so much enthusiasm and passion for her writing that I could just have carried on interviewing her for another two hours. Yeah, yeah, she was great. I think we did carry on talking with her for about two hours in Leicester Square, <laughs> but we still just spoke about everything under the sun, didn't we? Yeah, yeah. and in this podcast we're going to hear now, she talks about how difficult it was to write the book I had various attempts and I always had to stop because it made me too sad. Um, And then this time I kind of kept going because I just, I think I realised that if I didn't keep going, I'd just be, it would just be like another couple of years, I'd be back there again, um, Mm. still with an unprocessed story that I didn't know what to do with or how to live with it. Um, So I managed to, I managed to persevere. Looking back, I completely can see that, that my relationship with what happened once it was finished has has been like a continual sort of dance if you like over the rest of my life that I would sort of step in like I sort of I'd step into it I'd step out of it I'd run away from it I'd try to confront it um and in various ways it was this sort of like hideous two-step um and I do definitely think now that whilst it was painful to do and whilst it is indeed painful for anybody to confront any difficult story I think it's better to do it um rather than because um, the the other options really are just to ignore it and hope that it goes away but you know what it actually doesn't go away Did you keep a diary through the experience anyway? Had you been writing things down thoughts and feelings before? I didn't write about uh, basically up until the time my brother knocked over I was pretty much always writing something from the time I was able to write I think and then one of the consequences of his accident was I just lost I, I just felt that all my words went AWOL I just couldn't I could hardly speak really and I certainly couldn't write anything I couldn't find a way to describe what happened Um, and then a few years later I did start writing things down in notebooks a bit but I threw all those in a skip a few years after that (laughs) in a sort of because I just felt I was lugging around all this sadness so I I booted it all into actual baggage actual baggage yeah literal baggage and uh, by this by this time I'd been married and marriage had gone wrong and I was still like lugging these bags around so I threw them all in this skipping Parsons Green (laughs) (laughs) oh that must have been very cathartic (laughs) I would sort of I would recommend it for the way you feel in the moment but then I must say now I would really like to be able to read those notebooks and obviously it would have been from a technical point of view it would have been easier to recreate well it would have been easier to write about a lot of those times if I'd had 
if I'd had what I'd what I'd had what I'd written about it. I think it's quite interesting. Actually, one of the novels I've I've kind of got sloshing around in my head is about um, notebooks in a skip, like discovered notebooks in a skip because of that. Oh, it's a strong metaphor, isn't it? There's a lot you could do with that. Yeah. Yeah, it is. And I'm a serial offender as well. It's not the only time I've done it. All my written, all my written stuff. Are you ever think that someone might have found it? They have it. Well, I mean, it would be interesting, wouldn't it? Because um, I, hands up, I've taken things out of skips before. Have you got my notebooks? <laughs> <laughs> no, I've got a lovely old 60s clock that doesn't work, mm. but I don't have your notebooks. But, yeah, I mean, imagine if you, often if you're on the street, you know, and you see, like, maybe like a shopping list. Yeah. I often will look. Yes, I would have done, you see. If I had been, if I had seen someone throw a load of notebooks into a skip, I would always pinch them and read them because I would find that very fascinating. But um, anyway, who knows? If there's somebody out there, um, several bags, there were lots of orange Rodia notebooks because it was from when I was living in France. Oh, That's why nice. I remember them. Good books. Very yeah. nice yeah. books, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so when you got rid of those notebooks, you said you, you know, it would have made it easier to write the book i mean what was that process like actually writing the book i mean did it teach you anything about how to write grief without having those to hand i think i mean i think writing the book taught me all sorts of things um well taught me things about myself but also taught me things about writing and taught me things about and taught me things about grief it changed the way that i thought about things which i didn't really expect actually i thought i I initially thought that writing it would be a case of kind of almost like downloading what I what I knew, um, and that turned out actually not to be the case because in the course of writing it, I think I actively changed my mind about what I thought. I discovered new things. I thought of things in a new way. I also discovered or remembered lots of really beautiful, lovely things, and I've come to see that the one of the terrible things about refusing to confront whatever story it is you have trapped inside you is there's good stuff in there as well. You know, the bit because you're running away from the, the, the scary, frightening things, you're also running away from other nice things. And that was something that really surprised me. But as I kind of forced myself to, if you like, engage with the story, um, really lovely, beautiful memories would float up as well. So I feel very, um, I feel very rewarded, actually, because you know what? It was extremely hard. It was so hard and it would have been so much easier to not do it and it would have been so much easier just to carry on getting drunk all the time and finding other ways to blot it out. But I feel really rewarded for having done it because I I no longer feel like I'm a time bomb about to go off um, and because I've now actually... Now I've, I've had all these other beautiful memories and I feel a lot... I do feel sort of calmer about everything, I think. I wonder how difficult it must be to hand your grief, as it were, to somebody else and to start thinking about it through the prism of writing your grief for somebody. Well, I think it's probably quite useful in a way. And one of the things I realised, um, and I'm a professional reader, you know, so I have worked in books for years. I read a lot of books. I write about a lot of books. Um, and I sort of realised that I'd lost sight, actually, of what books are. And what I did in writing writing my book was I ended up going right back to the beginning. You know, like when we were sitting around fires as cave people, what, what was it we were trying to communicate with people? And I thought a lot about cave paintings. You know, when someone painted something on a cave wall, what were they trying to say? What, and I thought, actually, when you really boil it down, what we're always trying to communicate is, this happened to me. Can I tell you what happened to me? Do you want to listen? Will it be useful to you? And that's sort of all it is, really. So I really felt I went back to 
where it just went back to absolute the basics of communication, what language is for, what books initially were for, which is to say, this is what I know, here you are. And in terms of books, for a writer, you have to read books. I mean, did you read any other books that were about grief to kind of help you write this, or was that not the case? That's a really interesting question. I mean, I had read, I've always read very, very widely, and I think probably most of what I'd read about grief was slightly accidental, as in, because I was reading all books, I therefore did also read Blake Morrison's And When Did You Last See Your Father, and I read Joe Didion's A Year of Magical Thinking. Um, But I didn't search them out to help me with my own grief. I just read them because they were books that everybody was talking about. I tell you what was really a bit of a revelation was that I sort of had this idea stuck in my head, and this is going to sound bonkers, I had this idea stuck in my head that kind of people like me didn't really write books um, because I, you know, I grew up in Yorkshire and I remember saying I wanted to be a writer and my teachers telling me not to be stupid, you know. So I didn't know, I didn't grow up thinking that people wrote books. And although I eventually ended up, through a long series of peculiar accidents, getting a job in a bookshop and then kind of like accidentally ending up um, working in books and interviewing authors and seeing that they're just real people. So therefore there was no reason why I couldn't be one. (laughs) It was sort of all a bit accidental. So actually books, the books that were helpful for me in terms of writing were um, How to Be a Woman by Catelyn Moran, Maggie and Me by Damien Barr, and The Boy with the Top Knot by Satnam Sanghera. And definitely reading those books, written by people about my age, written by people who hadn't grown up in houses full of books with parents who were writers. Um, You know, because my dad couldn't read and write until he was 30, and I think Satnam's father also can't. Uh, You know, it's reading other people that came more from a background I found was recognisable was extraordinarily helpful. So I think it was probably that that was the main... um, uh, That was probably where I saw the lesson from. I think sometimes I wouldn't have written my book at all if something similar had existed, you know, because the problem I had was I processed the world by reading about it and then nothing existed that could help me understand what happened to us. Um, And since then, since finishing my book, there have been a couple of things... And I think now that actually if I hadn't written my book when I did, I don't think I would. You know, I don't think the existence of these other books would make me think, oh, maybe I should write about my story. I would just think like, oh, thank heaven someone else experienced something a bit like this. Now I can know that I'm not alone. And now I can go back to writing my lovely novel about adultery. (laughs) (laughs) The G novel. (laughs) Do you think when you were writing it, oh, gosh, you know, I am in this in a grief genre, as it were. You know, this is going to have a certain kind of uh, sort of tag to it, and it's difficult, and and people might not want to read it because it's about a very sad thing. Is that something that was in your mind a lot? Um, it was sort of. I mean, there were so many barriers to writing the book at all, and one of them definitely was I just didn't think anyone would ever want to read it. So, from a point of view of, and, and when I started writing it, it was very much. It was just I was just going to get it out of myself and put it in a drawer. I never really intended to show it to anyone. Um, so, and I never thought anyone would want to read it. And to be honest, it still surprises me. I still feel amazed that, um, and it's quite funny because sometimes people that I know might say to me a bit shiftily, and not that they should, because you should never apologise for not reading a book, but, um, <laughs> you know, because I'm in the world, someone at a party will say to me something like, oh, I, 
you know, I thought about reading your book, but I don't really like reading that sort of thing. And I, again, I wish they'd just not bothered because, I mean, who wants to hear that? But I always want, I, what well. I quite often say mm. is like, don't worry, I didn't want to write that sort of thing, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> it's this idea that, I don't know, it's all interesting, isn't it? All mm. that, the way that we process experience. But no, I, felt, I didn't think anybody would ever want to read it. But that's probably quite good because I think if I had, I don't think I would have written it at all if from the beginning I'd been thinking about readership. To finish it, though, I don't think I could have finished it if I hadn't been thinking about readership because I don't think I would have had the stamina to do the more difficult bits because the, the bits I was writing about at the beginning weren't as hard. And you, you, you talked about um, how rewarding it has been as a process. Is, is a lot of that reward from the response to the book and from what people have, have told you as well? Yeah, it's such a tricky thing. I'm honestly still... It's so much more complex than I would have thought. I honestly thought... And actually, I don't think this is unusual because probably this is what everybody thinks. I have always wanted to write a book since I knew that they existed. I honestly would have thought, if we kind of put to one side the sad reasons, you know, the sadness of the book, I honestly would have thought that having a book published that people liked would be an uncomplicated joy, you know, that it would just be sort of like, woohoo, I'm okay as a person. I'm no longer, you know, some deranged idiot that nobody wants to talk to. I've had a book published that people like. Life is now sorted. And it's just not like that at all. And that's people still think you're a deranged idiot. Well, I still think I'm a deranged idiot. It's so funny. On the way here, I haven't been on, I haven't been on Twitter for a while because it makes me feel a bit bonkers. But on the way here, I was on Twitter for various reasons, and somebody really sweet who's read my book had tweeted me, and I said thank you, and she said something like, she said again how wonderful it was. She said, she said, and then she said you're so brave and wonderful. And you know, I'm reading this tweet on the Piccadilly line, so not feeling brave and wonderful. So I don't know. There's been a lot of delays this week. Well, quite. Yes. Yeah. And just looking at my phone thinking somebody thinks I'm brave and wonderful <laughs> why can't that person come and live in my house and tell me that on a daily basis <laughs> that's how we got in touch I, I think I remember tweeting an aubergine emoji yeah. <laughs> and then you, you, I think you messaged saying oh uh, one of those is in my new book or something yeah, and isn't the aubergine emoji actually rude? Someone I, th- told I think me. it is. I think that's why I use it. But, but... I just like aubergines. <laughs> <laughs> a friend DM'd me, a, a, you know, a younger friend, obviously looking out at me. He said, do you know what the aubergine emoji means? And I was like, no, isn't it just aubergines? Uh-huh. Yeah, because in my, cause I really love aubergines. I love the... Well, anyway, <laughs> I should probably stop. <laughs> a, a, a twist of fate with yes. the aubergine. <laughs> but I think also Twitter as well is a platform, especially this year as well in... 2016 everyone said it's been such a terrible year it's a platform for people to kind of vent as well that's the kind of the negative side of it and also to talk about grief and we were just talking earlier me and Rachel um about the word grief about do people actually understand the meaning of that word or has that word perhaps changed over the course of this year that is a very interesting thought. Um, I've also been thinking about the extent to which you can anticipate grief before experiencing it, or even should particularly anticipate grief before experiencing it. Um, I did. I think it's interesting when people say things like, um, someone said, you know, well, 2016 has been so awful, I, I just feel like I've been grieving the whole time. And oh, well, I guess I don't want to trounce any. I don't want to trash anyone else's thoughts, but it does make me think, well... It, it isn't grief. That's not, that's, I don't know. I think it's interesting. Someone, um, I was talking to someone who's, who has had a relative who's died this year. And she says an awful lot of people seem to think that they understand how she feels because they were sad about David Bowie. 
Now, I, and again, I'm very happy. I think it's great to be sad and emotionally moved when artists die. I'm not at all... Because, again, that's the thing with social media, isn't it? There's a big argument about whether or not it's OK to be sad. Um, I th- it, it's fine. But it is not the same as being his wife or his child or somebody that actually knows him. And it is not the same as being someone whose father has died. Or And I think that is really interesting. And I do remember that... It's not like that's a new thing, because I remember that with when everybody responded to the death of Princess Diana. And I do remember someone in our pub said to me, like, I understand how you felt about your brother now. Mm. And I just, I mean, what do you do with that? I, said, well, I really don't think you do. I don't think I said anything. I think I just like, smiled and nodded. But how do you... But I think that's the thing. Unless you have experienced it yourself, you probably would think the two things are comparable. But, but they're really not. And I think anybody that had known a personal grief... I don't think would make that comparison. I would never be able to say, you know, oh, I'm so sad that Prince has died. It really reminds me of how I felt when my brother died. Yeah. You know, nobody says it that way around, <laughs> do they? I think what's interesting is just I, I don't think I would ever say I understand your grief because what your book demonstrates and what I think most people know is that grief is entirely personal. It's your own mm. experience. And, you know, the way that you process it, I think that's obviously why it's so interesting, you know, your book is so interesting because that's someone else's grief there and you almost want to reference your grief against someone else's to try and understand it. It's always trying to make sense of things. But everyone has their own experience. There's no one grief experience, I don't think. Yeah, I think it's a unique... um, Think about how it's a bit like a theme park, isn't it, life? And the the, the grief roller coaster actually has a... Part of the grief roller coaster is that you get it tailored. (laughs) You know, you get your own specific ride... Um, I do think it. I, I find it very helpful to know other, you know, know how it has felt for other people, and that has been the bit about the response to the book that has been um, unequivocally amazing and a great honour. Has been that people write to me and talk to me about their own experiences, and it's really deepened my understanding. And I now feel really that my book is, it's just a conversation opener, really. I don't. Th- I like the fact that I, I I tried to I tried to create it. I tried to write something where there was loads of space, so that even though it was a very specific story and, and a story of something that most people haven't experienced and don't even know about, don't even really know is a possibility. I tried to write it so that there was space for the reader to think about themselves, and obviously I succeeded in that because that's when people write to me, that's what they tell me, and then when I read what someone writes to me I find it expands my knowledge and my understanding so it feels like a really virtuous cyclical beautiful state of affairs and again I feel very rewarded that the um and I think you know I think honesty and authenticity is so hard isn't it so hard to do for lots of reasons but I think you so often you put a bit of honesty into the world and you immediately get hugely rewarded and I think and that's something I really am trying to do I'm really trying to do that in my life, be as honest as I can, which is, which again, is actually very, very difficult, but be as honest as I can. And then you just so often reap the benefits because people are honest back. And then you just cut through all the crap, really, all the posturing, all the pretending, all the masks that we wear just to get ourselves through the day, often which are really necessary for times, you know. Um, I'm never, I don't over advocate that, you know, if you go total 100% honesty from a standing start, then maybe it's, well, it's it'd be nowhere, high octane, so. wouldn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a good point. It brings me on to our question earlier. We're talking about, about your new book, 
um, mm. Manifor Heartbreak. Is, is that where the kind of idea for this book has come from, is through that response to The Last Act of Love? Yes, it did, actually. The very specific starting point was that people kept saying to me things like, uh, they said, I really want to give your book to my sister, whose son has just died, but I'm worried that the story bit might be too sad for her, but I think it'd be really useful for her to read how you coped. Do you think I can? And I just always say, like, well, I don't know. I mean, I don't know. How How can I, poss- you know, how can I possibly judge? But this kept happening, kept happening, kept happening, kept happening. But I started thinking about whether or not it would be possible to write something where the intention was to write something helpful and consoling for somebody in a time of upheaval. Um, and then the other strands were that I had I really started thinking about how loss and grief, and, and also grief not necessarily related to death, but the all loss, from sort of like the loss of innocence, uh, loss of a relationship, or the loss of a person, that they do have so much in common, whilst all being intensely specific at the time, same time. So it's an endless, really interesting uh, sort of mashup between the specific and the universal. And that's what it started messing about with. Um, and actually, as it turns out, uh, you'll be relieved to know, I'm very pleased with it. <laughs> it was really hard. I didn't think it would be hard either. I thought I could quite quickly do it. And as it turned out, it was unbelievably hard. And I very nearly abandoned it. Um, but I'm glad I didn't. Um, and I feel... I feel very pleased with it. And I wrote, I, I didn't, I specifically wrote it. I, I think it is a book you could give to people because there is not, I mean, say it might not work for someone. They might think, you know, they might be too angry or, you know, because that's the stages of grief thing. <laughs> they might not be ready for it. It might not work for someone, but it's not going to make someone feel worse, I don't think. And that felt really important to me. A Manual for Heartache will be published in June and you can find out more about Kathy at kathyreadsbooks.wordpress.com or why not tweet her and tell her why she's amazing at kathyreadsbooks. And you can find all things Funhouse at funhousemagazine.com plus news of a very exciting event, Ollie, coming up soon. So, yep, we're doing an event with Stack Magazine um, on February 13th at the Ace Hotel. So at 6.30 onwards, Funhouse will have two readers. That's Sophie McIntosh, who's in issue three, and Bryony White, who's in issue two. They'll be reading about love, or something related to love. And we'll be there with other magazines, such as The Happy Reader and Hot Dog Magazine. Something related to love. Mm -hmm. Don't miss it. (laughs) 